0: Well, the series that we've been in, what I've been preaching, has been called The Extraordinary Life of Faith. The Extraordinary Life of Faith. And we have been in Hebrews chapter 11, which (laughs) has been called by many the Hall of Fame of Faith. In other words, the the Christian should live by faith. That's how all of us are called to live. And this gives a list of people, usually it's like one or two verses, that mention them, and then there's a story that's in the Old Testament that gives you all of the detail. That it's it's mentioning all of, uh, all of these people. And I think that for those of us that are developing in our faith, not just of what you believe doctrinally, but learning to believe God and learning to trust the Lord. There are certain things that are easy. We believe the sun's going to come up. We believe the sun's going to set Uh, We believe in things that are normal and easy. But there are also things that are very difficult for us to believe. Impossible things. Needs that we have that we we sometimes even give up praying about because we just figure it's not going to happen. And this is the kind of faith we're talking about. Extraordinary, extraordinary faith. Believing God. And in each one of these mentions, in Hebrews 11, there's going to be a story that that walks us through how God did the impossible, and man, or woman, whoever it might be, today it's going to be a woman that we talk about, had a very simple faith. During the Civil War, there was a chaplain for the army by the name of Ian Bounds, and he wrote this. He said, faith does the impossible because it brings God to undertake for us and nothing is impossible for God. Let me me say that again. Faith does the impossible because it brings God to undertake for us and nothing is impossible for God. As we shared when man works, man works. When you work, you work. When I do stuff, I do stuff and there's a limit to what I can do. But nothing is impossible for God. And the kind of life that God calls you to is an impossible life. Whatever His will is, and for for most of us here, it's going to look different. But whatever God has for you, your path, your journey, your future, is going to demand that you trust in Him for impossible things. His will for you is humanly impossible. Now, a lot of introductions that we'll make in Hebrews. and Hebrews chapter 11, you read about Abraham, and we talked about last week about Joshua, and these are more notable people. We're going to come to a text in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and mention someone who is highly esteemed. Now, this is the hall of faith. We're talking about Abraham, David is mentioned, and Noah. And Joshua, how would you introduce someone who is highly esteemed and who you greatly admire? And then think about how this is stated. Hebrews 11, verse 31, it says, By faith, the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Okay, I'm going to introduce someone to you. And I'm not going to have anybody come up here and stand up here. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be really awkward. Here's my very good friend, friend Rahab, the prostitute. We're trying to get the kids out of the room. <laughs> you think, why would anyone do that? Why would you ever <clears throat> bring up something that seems so negative to introduce someone you highly esteem? Why is it that? In the New Testament, when we're referring back to these events that that are written about in Joshua chapter 2, that you have to include that word. Why are we digging up the past? Why are we bringing up something that is negative? Why can't we just say, Rahab the Christian? Rahab the believer? Rahab the wonderful lady of faith? Instead of saying, Rahab the prostitute? And I believe it's this because God wants us to hear the story. And it is a beautiful story of the grace of God. And that's what this book is about. It's about the grace of God. And I think of all of the subjects that I have brought up, this is my favorite. I'm not saying this would be the best sermon, (laughs) but I'm, I'm telling you, this is my favorite. Story. And just to give you a little bit of uh, backstory on what's happened, last week we were talking about Joshua. Excuse me, Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're standing uh, and, and preparing to go into the promised land. Joshua has challenged the people. About going in. And it's going to be an exercise of faith. There's a Jordan River. <clears throat> they need to cross over the river. And it is flowing at a rapid speed. It's uh, the time of year where it would be very difficult to cross. And the Lord says, I want you to go. <clears throat> and the priests are going to put their foot in the water. And as soon as they step into the water, it's going to part. It's going to the watershed part, you can walk across and drive very similar to what took place at the Red Sea. And when they get across, the first thing they face is the most fortified city in all of Canaan. Now God said, all of this land from the Jordan River, there's some, some land that was to the east of that, but pretty much from the Jordan River all the way to the Mediterranean, from south of the Dead Sea all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at a a modern map. And I was going to try and show you, but all the maps I thought were just kind of, it lines all over. But if you can just picture that, the very north, the Sea of Galilee, and then there's the Jordan River that runs all the way down to the Dead Sea, and all of that land past the Jordan River to, to the Mediterranean is going to be their land. And God said, it's yours. It's yours. Now go possess it. And, and the faith part of it, is that there's a river, and you've got to trust me to miraculously part that river. There's a city, and you've got to trust me to miraculously destroy that city, because they wouldn't be able to do that. And that's the way faith works. I trust God, and the evidence of my faith is I obey. Okay? I put my foot in the water, and I go. And then the way that he destroyed the city of Jericho which was uh, a pretty amazing city. It uh, was about eight acres of city, two 30-foot stone walls all the way around. There were homes and fortresses and towers built all around us. It was the most uh, fortified city in all of the land of Canaan. And these people, the Canaanites, were strong, they were powerful, they were cultured people, and yet they were pagan. They did human sacrifices. They worshipped Baal. Um, they they were connected with all of that part of the world. And to think about these people who were not really given to warfare, to go in and be able to take this, was humanly impossible. Same way for your life. Whatever God's called you to do is humanly impossible. So he says, I want you to go in every day, march around the city for seven days. On the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times and shout and see what I'm going to do and what happened was when they shouted and they, they obeyed God they trusted him and obeyed God did the supernatural and, and the walls, those magnificent 30 foot stone walls 12 feet thick <laughs> crumbled down and the, and the whole city was leveled and they, and they went in and they began every place they went worked the same way I'm going to trust God, I'm going to obey God I'm going to depend upon him to do the supernatural. Now, Rahab was a woman who lived on the wall, and she had her home. It was probably like an inn or a hotel. Her profession was both of those things, running running the inn, and she was a prostitute. And her family lived there with her. And so we're we're coming to a woman who, she's not a part of Israel. She's not a part of God's people. (coughs) So how is it that all of a sudden we're shifting over to a woman who is a prostitute, who is a a pagan, lives in a a pagan city, and is the enemy of God, so to speak? Because the Lord said to Israel, you go in and you you wipe out the land. And that's why I think that it is such an incredible and beautiful story.
1: Rahab
0: becomes a recipient of God's grace. Most unlikely. And I think there there are a few reasons why it's so unlikely. Of course, it's a pagan in a distant nation, and no one's ever heard of her. She's not a prominent person. She's probably of what you would, would call person you don't want to spend time with, the person who is not being one of the well known people of the city? And you think, how does God get to her? And this raises a question for me and I think processes my thinking too. What about the people in other parts of the world that we don't even know about? Have you ever thought about this? What about people who live in some jungle on the other side of the earth, who have never heard about Jesus Christ? What's going to happen to them? And I start to think about things like that. I don't know if you do. But what is so amazing is God has done something special for this woman who is known as a prostitute. She is known as someone who is... uh, unlikely to be pleasing God in any way. So, how does God work in this? And just to follow a few thoughts, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, what is the world? What is the world? It's not the physical earth. It's not the cultural system. When it, when it says God, for God so loved the world, it's talking about people. And it's talking about people here, and it's talking about people all the way on the other side of the earth in some obscure jungle who have never heard of Jesus Christ. That's the love of God. You say, well, but how are they, how, is there any chance? I, I, I get to think, is God fair? Is God really fair? Because we have such privilege here. Is it really fair for other people? And this is where, in Romans chapter 1, I think we have, we have a great text that describes how that God has, through his creation, made himself known to the earth. Now, it doesn't make known every detail of theology or of doctrine. But the psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Day after day it utters speech, and night after night it shows knowledge. So how does God communicate his existence? He communicates his existence through his creative work. He also shows us his existence by the conscience that we have in our lives. I mean, you you are a Person made in the image of God. You have a living soul. And that gives you the knowledge, the fact that there is a God. So you say, well, but that's not enough to become a Christian, is it? Well, here's what Jeremiah says. He says, and it's the Lord speaking, if you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me with all your heart, is that amazing? If you seek me, seek me. You will find me. It is it possible for someone on the other side of the earth who has no Bible, no religion, no anything, who's in the most, most remote place in all the earth, if that person, by observing God's works and God's creation and understanding in their conscience of his presence, begins to seek the Lord, then God in some way will allow them to come to him. And, and we've heard story after story throughout history of all of a sudden missionaries showing up in a place and saying, why would you ever go there? And that's the promise that flows from the goodness of God. Second Peter 3.9 says, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I cannot understand how all of that works, but this is the heart of God. God loves people. And God sent his son to redeem them. And that means, yes, the people, the children of Israel, who are all part of the the, the, uh, religion that God approves, but it also means this woman, who's part of a pagan world, who is so obscure and so low down on the totem pole, that God is pursuing her. And a lot of times, this happens in a crisis or a need. You start to realize you, you have a need. It's like it was described as that God-shaped vacuum. God-shaped vacuum in your life. Now think about this. Every person here who came today has a story of how God's been pursuing you. Right? I mean, I'm not talking about pursuing you to get you here to church I'm talking about every person in here can tell a story about how God has and continues to pursue you for himself. And that is so amazing because we come from all kinds of backgrounds. And that story is a story of his grace and his goodness and his initiative. I think it's unlikely because of the obscurity of Rahab, but I think also unlikely because of her sinfulness. It says Rahab was a prostitute. Now, I'm sure we could think of other names and other sins, and probably some that would be worse. But here's the point. If you go to the first three chapters of the, of the book of Romans, there's really one big idea that you come away with. All have sinned. All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. And every person here was born a sinner. Now, we we tend to break it down, and I I, I kind of jot down three kinds of sinners. First of all, there are repulsive sinners. I mean, they do stuff like, I can't believe it. Can you believe that? That That's sick. You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> See it on the news, read it in the paper. You hear someone did that, or they lived that way, you think, that is just sick. I, I can't believe anyone would do that. They're sinners. That's easy for us to figure that one out. But the next one's a little harder. Respectable sinners. These are morally upright citizens. These are good people. They do nice things. You don't think of them as bad, they've not broken any laws, they don't cheat and rob people, but they're sinners. And then you have a third kind of sinner, and that's the religious sinner. They're the ones that are so committed to their religion, they may go to church every day, they read their Bible every day, they do their best to keep the Ten Commandments, and they're sinners. And you know what? The consequence of <coughs> sin is the same for everyone. The wages of sin is death. So, whether you're a respectable sinner, repulsive sinner, or you're a religious sinner, the same is the same end, the same consequence. I think this is what Jesus <coughs> has said. Because I think people had a hard time processing this. You you have sinned, and I'm going to show you in what way. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you say if a person murders someone, they're a sinner. But I'm telling you, if you're angry with your brother or sister without cause, you've already committed murder. So he says anger is equivalent to murder. You say, it's it's a sin to commit adultery. This would be where Rahab is involved. But he said, I say unto you, if you look on a woman to lust upon her, you've already committed sin in your heart. And Jesus typically, when he's dealing with sinners, which, you know, he, he comes into this world and he's dealing with sinners. He's probably going to address the ones that have a harder time seeing it more than others, and I think the two kinds of people that have a hard time seeing their sin are rich people and righteous people, self-righteous people, because they got everything they need. Why, why would I? Why, why would I worry? And it's it's those are the two kinds of people that were always uncomfortable being around Jesus. If you'll notice where he went and who he hung around, who was it? It was the people who were sinners, immoral people, liars, cheats, thieves, murderers, pagans. That's who Jesus was drawn to because they understood their need. And the people that got the full weight of his criticism were called the Pharisees. Have you heard that before? The Pharisees. Now we use that to pretty much describe kinds of people. But the Pharisees, they didn't see any of this. And I, I, I've jotted down five things that I think describe a Pharisee. One is externalism. They are They live their lives based upon performance and image management. Now, does that make sense? Live my life on what I do and how I look. That drives probably most everyone in this world. Because we care about what I do, how I define myself, and how I look. And our kids grow up that way. Externalism. And how does Jesus deal with that kind of phoniness? That that it's out here in this externalism? Well, he starts talking about the (coughs) heart. starts talking about what's beneath the surface. And that's when they get very, very uncomfortable. The second kind of person was the self-righteous, the the proud, the one who says, I've I've kept all this, I've done this, I've done this. And you talk about your relationship with God, and and they start telling you all the things they've done for God. They're self-righteous, they're proud. They're also judgmental. It is so easy for them to find criticism with others, and I think that that's true with all of us. I'm more quick to criticize you than I am to criticize myself. Typically, I can I can find fault everywhere. So they're external, they're self-righteous, they're judgmental, condescending, and then they're hypocritical, hypocrisy. Jesus used this illustration, said, you know, you're you're trying to get speck out of your brother's eye, and you've got a plank in your own eye. And typically, the things that bother us most about other people, we're guilty of ourselves. So I'm not a hypocrite. I think most of us are hypocrites. We say we believe one thing, we live another. We look at all the faults of other people, we don't really look at the faults of ourselves. But The last one is probably the most troubling in his blindness. He called the Pharisees, you blind leaders of the blind. Well, blind to what? You don't see the truth. You don't see your problem. You don't even realize you have a problem. You think you're really doing well. Whereas someone like Rahab, she knows she's a sinner. I tell you, one of the biggest parts about coming to God through Christ is to recognize the fact that whether you're, you know, a really good person, still a sinner, or you're of mother repulsive people, whatever, you you are a sinner. You're a sinner in need of a savior. And Rahab is such a person. You know, just to to share to me another great story. This it, it's a it's a great story because God goes like out of the box, way out of here to find this obscure person who's living in a sinful life, and he. Gives grace to her. The same way you've heard of Jonah. He's the one that was swallowed by the great fish because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach. God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. He said, I'm not, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go. Because he didn't want that. He did not want God to be merciful. Now, after 9/11, or maybe after some horrific thing that people do, you—you're like me. You just want judgment, right? You just want them to pay. And and, you know, and if someone's gonna get forgiven. You don't want that. These are the repulsive centers, and this is where Jonah was. You say, "Well, Jonah was supposed to be the man of God, the prophet." And yet, you know what, he sees these people who have just been horrible, and they deserve it. And yet, finally after his being in the belly of the fish, spit up on the shore, and God says, now, okay, now, go. And he goes and he preaches, and I don't think his attitude's really good. And the whole city repents and believes in God. So, how did Jonah take that? He was ticked. He wanted them torched. He just wanted God just to smoke and fire. And, and yet, God's mercy prevails. And God had said, You say, Well, God changed his mind. God did change his mind. And you see, God does not change his character. God does not change his word, but when God says judgment's coming, and a person shows a response in simple faith, and that's what happened in men of them, they find forgiveness. And I feel that that is a, a beautiful, magnificent story. Now, God had other things to do with Jonah to try to get him back to where he needed to be. And this woman was in a hopeless situation. (laughs) Obscurity, sinfulness, remoteness, and her whole city is going to be reduced to rubble. I mean, completely wiped out. What hope is there? And so in Joshua chapter 2, I'm not going to have you read that because there are are over 20-some verses, which... uh, take us a bit of time. But the story is that in their due diligence again, Joshua is sending in the spies, two of whom this time. And these two spies sneak into the city. They go up to the north. They come in, and they, they scope out the city. Now, they're going to have to stay somewhere. So they go to this kind of side of the, the city that's not... Um, It'd be visible to a lot of people. It's kind of where a low life is living. Rahab, the prostitute, and stay in this end. And I think that what's, what's so amazing about this experience, they have a conversation. They're up on the rooftop at night. And she comes up. And it says in, in verse 8 of Joshua 2, it says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know. That the Lord has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And then she said, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear
1: and everyone's
0: courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. How did she know that? How did she know that? I mean, the only way she knew that is by what she saw and what she heard. God gave her enough truth for her to exercise a little bit of faith. It wasn't a perfect faith. It wasn't this well-developed faith. It, it wasn't like the Jews were on the other side of the Jordan. It wasn't like it was a very simple faith. But she knew God was real. God was powerful. She recognized that. And I think that when, when you start to realize the greatness and the awesomeness of God, it could drive you to fear. Like it says, their hearts will melt you with fear or even drive you to faith. I think I shared a couple weeks ago that when, when difficult circumstances come into your life, they either drive you from God or to God. Either from God or to God. And this is driving her to God. And so she asks, she says in verse 12, Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. That you will save them from this death. So what the two spies say verse 17 says this oath we make and we swear to you that, that you are to tie a scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And that scarlet cord, which I I find is is really interesting, this scarlet cord, red blood, which is... All of this is going to point, when we get to the New Testament, to Jesus Christ. It's all going to point to Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Because you just see it. I mean, it says it. You go to Hebrews, you go to Matthew, you go all the way through the New Testament. And it says, if we see that scarlet cord hanging from your window, then... Everyone that's in your house will be saved. And so she hid them. She let them escape. And they left. And she tied a scarlet, scarlet cord in the window. Which here, she she heard enough to exercise faith. She made the request. She followed in obedience. And she tied the cord in the window and what happened was when, when they marched around that city on that seventh day and shouted, and the walls were reduced to rubble. I mean, these are big, big stones, that these walls. Thirty-foot walls, two of them, surround eight acres, <clears throat> reduced to complete rubble. Her house on top of the wall stood intact with that scarlet cord. That's what I think is so beautiful about this story. She's unlikely. Why? Why so obscure? Not a Jew. Not God's people. She's such a sinner. She she is not deserving of anything like this. It is such an impossible thing. How are we going to rescue one person or really one family? And it's it's the simple. We been talk about simple faith, and it's extraordinary. Because of what God does. It's extraordinary because of what God does. The faith in itself is simple. Like stepping in the water and the water water parts. Marching around the building. It's simple. But what God does is extraordinary. There's revelation. She heard the words of the Lord. She heard the stories of the works of God. She believed in this God. And she was willing even to turn and forsake all of her people and all of her culture and all of that city to believe in this God. And the blessing that came was the fact that she was saved, she was delivered, and all of her family. And The decisions we make do affect our families. All of her household came to Christ. So she heard, she believed, she obeyed, that you received the blessing from the Lord. Now, it's a great story. But it's part of a much bigger story. And that's what I want you to see. We have this story of Rahab, the prostitute. That God saves her uh, while he destroys Jericho. But the bigger story, and I want you to see this. If you brought your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. You may, you may have it on your phone or whatever. Uh, That's fun, too. I want you to see this. We we come to the first chapter. And I don't know how many of you have ever said, I'm going to read through my New Testament this year. And you start in Matthew. I'm so excited about reading my Bible. So here's how we go. Verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers Judah the father of Perez and Zariah, the mother of Tamar, Perez the father of... is this exciting? <laughs> and I think, how many times I thought, why do they put that in the Bible? Because I like John 3.16 and Romans 8.28 and all these great verses. And I'll tell you why this is so powerful started going down in verse 5, it says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and you all went down to Christ. Not only is this a beautiful story, in and of itself is how God, His grace rescues someone out of obscurity and sinfulness and impossibility. Not only does God rescue you out of your sin, whether you're a respectable, repulsive, or religious sinner, God rescues you out of your sin, and he weeds you into his greater story, his bigger story. She is in the line of Jesus. So what you think? My great 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 grandmother, Rahab, the prostitute. No, 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 that can't be in the line of Jesus. There are actually four women that are in this list. And if you do a study on these women, three of them were immoral. And one of them, Ruth, ladies will be studying in their Bible study. Writing, was part of the Moabites that that whole nation was a result of an incestuous relationship. <laughs> so, this is the beauty of, of and the power of the gospel. It's not just to clean up your life. It's like God is saying from the beginning, from Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and, and all the way down to David and by the way Rahab, the prostitute, We have an amazing God. And, and you see, the story that God's writing for you is about you're a sinner, and he pursues you. You're here this morning. God's pursued you. <laughs> and he rescues you, and he redeems you. And the reason we say Rahab the prostitute not Rahab the prostitute (coughs) or Rahab she's a great lady is is because there is a great story to tell about the goodness of God. And Rahab is no worse than any of us here. That's what you've got to understand. When you say for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God well what about the Taliban? What about ISIS? What about child molesters? What about murders and thieves? What about for all have sinned Become short the Word of God. We're all in the same boat. And God has revealed to us enough to step out of faith, to believe. He's revealed His Son, the Lord Jesus, to wash away our sins, to cleanse us, not just prostitution, but murder and all the other sins. He washes all of them away. He rescues you.
1: And not only does He
0: rescue you, He puts you into part of His master plan. That is a great God. It's not just about you. It's not just about saving you. It's not just about rescuing you. It's God that wants to work his plan in your life to bring you in and weave you in to this bigger story. When you start to read through the New Testament, you, can, you come across a name like that. You remember the woman Bathsheba? You ever heard that name Bathsheba? she was married to a guy by the name of Uriah one of David's most trusted men and King David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba she got pregnant so he murdered her husband so Bathsheba do you know what her son's name was? Solomon. Like, wow! How, how, how God takes the ashes, the difficulty, the struggle, the pain, the hurt of your life and he works a story of goodness and grace. But it's not just for you. What, what happens is now ran is part of the story of redemption for the whole world. Now I'm going to ask you a question as we What's your story? What's what's your story? How are you going to write it? The story of God loving you, seeing you, no matter what kind of sinner you are, on the other end of the earth, or right here? God's loved you. He's sought you. He's pursued you. He's offered you the gift of eternal life. For those of you that have put your faith and trust in Him, He's washed away all of your sins. And there's a great story about that. There's a great story about that. Just to that point. But God is also writing a further story about how He's going to weave you in to proclaiming this message of good news to the ends of the earth. And you've got to see that. You know, sometimes we will look at our past. prostitution, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, we hang our heads. Every, every one of us, when we write our stories, has got some junk in it. But but the beauty of the story is how God forgives and washes clean, mm-hmm. and He uses it to set a story. And that's why I believe she's referred to as Rahab, the prostitute. Not to glory in the sin, but to glory in the fact of God's grace and His redemption his plan and then you'll see this all the way through the New Testament that same concept of the genealogy so when you get bored next time read through the genealogy pick out some of those names and see the story and realize in the same way God's writing a story for each one of us let's bow together.